A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome back to Snowcast. I'm John Snow. And this week's guest is the British Trinidadian artist, Zach Obey. Zach was born into an artistic family, and after studying at St. Martin's School of Art, he worked as a photographer and a director of television and music videos. At the age of 40, Zach had an epiphany while filming in Trinidad. Feeling a distance from his subject matter, Zach realised that he wanted to be a maker, and that sculpture would allow him to express his true voice. Since then, Zach's sculptures have been exhibited in the British Museum, at Somerset House and around the world. His latest is a nine-metre-high sculpture called The Mothership Connection. Park psychedelic totem pole, part space rocket, it's his largest work to date and currently stands resplendent in London's Regent's Park. I've been to see it and it is magic. This interview was recorded on Monday the 9th of October, just a few weeks after the death of Zach's father, the acclaimed filmmaker Horace Obey. So we took some time to discuss Horace's considerable legacy, as well as Zach's own brilliant career. Zach, welcome. I'm incredibly grateful that you've taken the time to come and talk with me. Thank and my you, John. deepest condolences on the loss of your father. Oh, we'll that's very be kind of you. well, we'll be paying tribute to his big cultural legacy in this interview. But to begin, let's go back to your childhood in London in the late 60s and 70s. It sounds like a rich environment of creative inspiration. Can you tell me about your parents and what they both did. Yes, indeed. Well, my father arrived in Britain, I think, in the early 60s, looking for work, wanting to find a career in the arts at that point and not really knowing how, I guess. He met my mother at a socialist workers' <laughs> party meeting. She'd been a speaker for the Communist Party prior to that at Hyde Park Corner and was very actively involved in the Socialist Workers' Party. He was Trinidadian. Yeah. She? She was Irish, uh, yeah. but grew up here mm -hmm. in Hackney. Yeah, I think they met a kind of amidst a sort of whole political scene at that point in time. Horace had not long arrived from the Caribbean, from Trinidad. 
and she worked in fashion. My mother ran a clothing boutique on Parkway in Camden for many years. And yeah, it was quite an exciting childhood to be amidst them and their world. The house was always open. Obviously, it was a pre-digital age in that time. The way that people really congregated were in meetings, at homes, and social gatherings. And my mother realized that, and she had a real gift and an art for bringing people together. So it was quite spectacular. They made a real point of trying to invite like minds and bright, ambitious young artists, writers, novelists, musicians, etc., to their forums so that they might engage in conversations that kind of attributed to, to what might be done next. Do you ever wonder which bit of your parents informed what about you? Yeah, I often think about that, actually. It's interesting. But in a way, I'm not sure. Definitely artistic attributes from my father. I think my mother's assertiveness also. <laughs> Horace had tried to get into film school and was rejected in 1965. And she insisted he went back and wouldn't take no for an answer. She was like, this is no reason for you not to challenge them on that. This was in they, Britain? Yeah, this Gosh. was the London International Film School. Wow. And they'd never had a black student at that point. No. So he made a big protest, went back, and they eventually took him. He ended up in uh, class with Michael Mann, another big British director. And then on leaving film school... My mother's first husband had founded the British Board of Chinese Medicine and Acupuncture. And he actually funded Horace to make a film on acupuncture called Eye of the Needle in 1965, which was his first real film, leaving film school. Post that, he went on to do many things. But actually, if we go back, I think what was interesting about Horace was on arrival, he was cast in the film of Cleopatra and Mark Antony with Elizabeth Taylor along with a string of other fellows from Labrock Grove, who all had to play slaves in the movie. And they were paid top money in that day. But then Elizabeth Taylor had insisted they finish the shoot in Rome. So the entire cast were flown to Rome in 1960 or 61, and Horace remained there for three years. I mean, they absolutely lost their minds. They were being paid top dollar, I think it was something like £50 a day, to be in Italy at that point in time, and it, it blew them away. Oh, amazing. Uh, uh, you can imagine the scale of the set at that time, 15,000 extras. And then Horace went on to study painting. The reason I mention that is actually because then when he got his first commercial job years later for the BBC, uh, it was interesting that he made a film called Black Safari, which was the ambitious journey of floor African explorers to the centre of Britain. It's wow. a kind of spoof. But a fantastic movie that we'll be showing this month at the BFI as part of his retrospective. Yeah. So my parents then were very politically active and engaged. Horace was pursuing a career in film and television. My mother pursuing uh, her own career in fashion. Uh, In the 35 years that she was selling women's wear, she never sold high heels or polyester mix because she deemed them bad for women. And she had a thriving little business in Camden Town, which is where we grew up. Mm. And it was an incredible world to be amidst. Um, Horace went on to make a film with James Baldwin in 1969, who became a lifelong friend of his. And again, the kind of people that we would see on a regular basis were people like James Baldwin, um, local people like Bernard Copps, Oscar Lewinstein, who was a big producer at the Royal Court, uh, people like St. Clair Burnett, Bill Duke from the United States. It was a real interesting hub and mix of creatives from all different fields. Your father's film, Pressure, is being screened at the 
British Film Institute in London yeah. at the film festival. For anyone unfamiliar with it, can you tell me what the film is about and why it was so influential? It really tried in a narrative manner to document the arrival of a Windrush family caught up in immigration at that moment, coming to Britain for a sense of embetterment and struggling with what they find on arrival. The father had been an accountant in Trinidad and ends up working as a greengrocer whose wife is only eligible to clean people's homes. The oldest son had arrived from Trinidad but now finds himself caught up in the Black Power movement and rejects British society. And the younger son, who was born in Britain, is detached from their experiences, obviously with no knowledge of the Caribbean, and is rejected by the British society that he's growing up in. So the film really is trying to equate what his dilemma is as a young black Briton trying to find a sense of self in that moment in London. You get a sense too that for those who were not black but perhaps wanted to understand what immigration was about could actually learn a lot. Yes, I think so, because it's a familiar story, isn't it? I mean, so many people arrive into Britain in that same situation mm. looking for a sense of self and a sense of identity from there on. I think what's interesting now, though, when we look back, is that moment is really the beginning of a black British identity being forged. Mm. And um, the film went on to be banned by the BFI for two years, post its making. Incredible. For fear of race riots, which actually happened during the period in which it was banned anyway, then to be released, I think, in 78. It was made on a shoestring budget at the time for £11,000. Most of the people on it worked for free. It was very much a labour of love for all of those involved and a commitment for something that they all believed in. And luckily, right now, it's just won the George Lucas Prize for a new digital print, which is being screened both simultaneously in London and New York next week for the London and New York Film Festivals. Mm, what, what a great yeah, so moment. Very exciting. Your dad was a photographer and filmmaker, but yeah. what subjects and themes were important to him? When was race dominant? It was. Horace and his peer group had come from a generation that had grown up in colonial Trinidad, with inequality being a massive theme throughout that generation. What was important was that their history hadn't been accounted for properly. Hmm. And most importantly, most of it was an invisible history. We saw one side of a colonial past that we were taught in schools. We were taught about English kings and queens. But for them, they wanted to make sure that the next generation would be able to look back and have something else in that sense. I think if you look at the films Horace makes through his career, what's fascinating is the kind of subjects that he picks up on. He made the first film on reggae music in the early 70s. The film he made with Baldwin was really a film that investigated the notion of what it was to be black, both in the United States and in Britain simultaneously. And I think what's fascinating in that film is how James Baldwin is challenged by a Caribbean and African community of political thinkers who use different terminology. And it, it's an interesting meeting of minds in that moment mm. in the UK. Britain at that point in time had all kinds of people coming from colonial nations to share their stories so that they might go back in their struggle for independence. And I think Horace had picked up on that hmm. and, and wanted to be a part of that moment in how he challenged the colonial world to really unveil his own history and make visible the inequality that 
that he'd been struggling with uh, along with his peer group from the Caribbean. You said that your father really included you in his work. He did, yeah. Uh, and you joined him on shoots or in the edit suite from a very young age. What did you learn from watching him work? Oh, it was fascinating, John. I learned so much. I mean, I learned composition, photography. I think I also learned a sense of how one engages in a production from a kind of socialist standpoint, that you're either a part of the problem or a part of the solution, that everything is there to be picked up on in that moment. And what was fantastic were all of the wonderful situations that I was led into by his exploration, uh, working in Bhopal through the Union Carbide Gas Leak or working on pressure in the 70s as a kid, as a runner, in the Caribbean, across Africa. It was an amazing childhood being an assistant to a father like that with the kind of interests that he was following through as a professional and as a director and a photographer investigating all of these wonderful situations. But there was a great sense of realism woven through his filmmaking. Yes. I mean, I suppose in another age he would have been a full-time, nothing-else-but-documentary maker. But in fact, he was more diverse than that. Yeah, I, I think so, and always wanted to be. Horace was quite happy bobbing between all sorts of genres and mediums. He enjoyed painting also. He was very interested in the arts. He always tried to make a podium for other artists that he might then give a platform to in his own work. Mm. He was very conscientious like that and very excited by all of the art forms around him. In saying that, as much as he liked documentary filmmaking, he was also interested in narrative storytelling and drama. But these were days in which there was terrible racism. Yes. These were days when there were terrible pressures. Mm. And yet he seems to have come through it very creatively. I think so. And I think what's interesting about him and many of his peer group was the sense of determination that they arrived with. Given how little they had in front of them, and how big the challenge was ahead. And it's quite interesting today that we have so much, but yet we're still so unconfident in who we are often. So I think it's important that we collude in moments like mm. this and, and find ways to, to break these walls down. To what extent do you think your lineage has actually informed your art? Massively. Horace was a big part of my world. Of course. And it was very influential on how I think, what I do, I guess, in many respects. So that's really my source, is, is the strengths that I know I have in what I can do and how I might challenge the status quo with my own interpretation mm. of the world in front of me and how to open doors for others. I, I feel very much that I was raised by my parents' village beyond mm. the family itself, that, that their friends became my relatives, mm. my peers, and have helped informed my practice. You know, so for me, it was very important. And I feel that, in a way, the freedom I have to explore and experiment in sculpture and painting, in materials as ambiguous as mud or steel or whatever, are things that probably my father wouldn't have been able to do mm. within his own moment. And that being a director for him was something that gave him a highbrow title and it allowed him a position in society of respect. For me... Post his emancipated moment, I'm able to do all of that stuff and bring it back to some nice uh, intellectual questionings, you know, at the, at the base of it. Now, your sister, as a contrast, became mm. an actor. She did. Uh, did you ever fancy a career in front of a camera? Never. Not <laughs> whatsoever. I'm, I'm interested in, in the invisibility in my craft. The thing I've enjoyed this week the most is 
watching other people engage with that statue in mm. the park. You, you, know. you spent a lot of time there observing people. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. It's yeah. how you get feedback to understand whether or not what you've done has worked. Yeah. You know, in that moment, you can see how people are engaging with it. It's like a child that you've made that's leaving home and it's mm. waving you goodbye and said, you know what, it's all right, I can do this without you now. Now, you studied film and fine art at St Martin's School of Art. Did you focus exclusively on film and photography or did you explore other artistic possibilities? Actually, at that point in time, I was pretty much centred in film and photography. I was interested in music. I'd done some painting prior. But I think it was only once I'd started to go back to Trinidad and document the carnival that I became more interested in making things. And as I studied and documented makers of things, I became jealous of what they were doing (laughs) and didn't want to be the documenter anymore. I wanted to be the maker because to me this was more interesting. In a way, I kind of became disillusioned with the idea of becoming an in-house television or Hollywood director or producer of films. I felt very much that a lot of the time your ideas were robbed. Maybe if you got 60 or 70% of a treatment into the film or product, Hmm. you were supposed to be happy. For me, that wasn't enough. I liked the idea that in a studio I could really formulate my own ideas without having to ask permission or ask for a budget in that way so that what I present back is completely mine without dilution. That's not to say that there isn't compromise in what I do, but I like that way of working. I'd like briefly to ask you about your percussion period. How did you end up on Soul 2, Soul's debut album? Oh, wow. I'm surprised you've picked up on that. I've been playing music, which began with deal bands and whatnot as a kid in London. And my mother had a shop in Camden Town Mm. and I went to school in Haverstock. Soul to Soul was very much a neighbourhood thing. We'd all grown up in the same moment and we all lived in the same backyard and we all knew each other. And Jazzy had a cassette tape at that point in time that he was touting that was going to be his, his new album. And Soul to Soul already had impact as a big sound system that were playing out in places like the Africa Centre in Covent Garden and had an amazing following. Um, What they did was unique at that point in time in finding a kind of unique British style that was a cross between our Caribbean heritage and the kind of funky new persona of disco and whatnot at the time that created this fascinating hybrid between reggae, soul and a whole tapestry of sounds that were taking place. And, and I was very fortunate that Jazzy liked what I was doing, was interested in working with me and pulled me into the studio to work with him on three of the tracks for the album, which was a great privilege and an amazing experience to be a part of. Extraordinary and unique. I mean, I can't yeah. imagine this happens to many people. No, and it was a great time. And it was nice to have people like Soul to Soul, Jazzy and, and uh, all these wonderful creatives in Camden at that point in time as a hub. You're listening to Snowcast with me, John Snow, and we'll be right back after this. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewellery, Rebag is the answer. 
Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We can trace the influence of Carnival through your first big sculpture commission. Can you describe what a visitor to the British Museum's Africa galleries can see? You'll find there my two mockajumbis. Mm-hmm. Hang on, a mockajumbi? I was asked by the British Museum to make two works that spoke about the relationship between Africa and the Caribbean. And I chose the mockajumbi. The mockajumbi is a stalk walker that begins in Africa, in Mali and wades across the Atlantic to protect the people of the Caribbean. It's a traditional masquerade that's played every year throughout the Caribbean and is a local hero who really, if you like, carries our sense of Africanist pride in the Caribbean, who we are and who we might be. My parents were very insistent that I travelled regularly back to Trinidad. Mm. They were insistent that I didn't see myself only as a product of Camden Town. You're drawn to the transformation in the costumes and the masks. Can you tell me why? Yeah. I mean, I began with photography, documenting carnival. And one of the things I was interested in was how costume and masquerade became this enabler, in a sense, for smaller people or everyday people to literally exult through costume. How one could break away from how they'd been duped in a colonial island like the Caribbean. The independence movement in Trinidad actually grew out of the carnivalist movement. And these mythologies that were played out in masquerade year in, year out, were also used to challenge the authorities. And I think the idea that is kind of where I'm trying to get to, but it's how you use celebration or a sense of victory when marching towards a situation of protest or injustice and how, in the end, that helps you win. You look at an island like Trinidad, whose independence movement grows out of the carnivalist movement. I mean, the thing is, if you'd tried to approach that situation with guns, it wouldn't work. You'd just be shot down. But when you challenge somebody with irony, when you challenge somebody with a sense of victoriousness, and resplendor and and regalia in who you are. Mm. It's a very interesting way to go into combat. Electric, absolutely amazing. And I think in in, in one's art practice, it's very important for me that my work remains victorious in that sense and splendid, that it is a celebration. And by that celebration, I win. It's my victory. So what I like is the idea of an investigation, the idea that we're looking at all of this stuff. But in the end, how do we move through that? How does my work then engage in the celebration of having moved beyond the injustice of a situation and being able to shed light on something? 
And I think what's interesting is when you've been involved in that kind of art making, craft, performance, what it imbues in you is a, a sense of self belief and strength in who you are and how you might convey that in the bigger world and the bigger picture. These are big sculptures. Yeah. And we haven't even got to your whopping new work. Do you always work at scale? This must present an extraordinary challenge. No, I don't. I, I do a lot of wall-based work as well, which I make in crochet. I also work in all sorts of scales. Um, it's difficult working on big projects because of the expense. This particular work that's in the park now has been in storage for over two years because I couldn't get it shown. So it created a kind of desperate situation for me and not being able to afford to store it. Well, take me forward on that. Yeah. How did you manage to get it accepted? Well, I think because some of the galleries I've been working with felt that it was such an expense to install it, if they couldn't sell it, mm. that was a lot of money lost. Mm. Um, more recently, I've just started working with Gallery 1957, who were based in Accra in Ghana, with a, a wonderful gallerist named Marwan, who liked my work and, and approached me. And when I discussed this, was very excited to back me in this moment so that we could take this work to Freeze. It's the first time they've shown at Freeze also. He has an amazing roster of artists from across Africa and the Caribbean. And it was a great moment for us both to really fly this flag in Regent's Park. So I'm very excited to have their backing so that this could be actualized. Your work often connects the past and present. And The Invisible Man, your installation for Somerset House, yeah. was responding to a play performed at the same venue back in 1605. Can you tell me about this? I can. I was interested because 154 Art Fair, which is now over 10 years old, this was the first moment that we were able to do an installation in the court to speak about Africa, not only for the fair, but it was also the first moment to do an African in installation in that court. Since 1605, when Queen Anne insisted on a masquerade ball that was entitled The Mask of Blackness. This was written by Ben Johnson. Apparently she'd spent half the build cost of Somerset House on the masquerade ball. Ben Johnson, I think, was a, uh, probably a more renowned stage writer at that point than Shakespeare. And it was interesting, in the script, nine English princesses play African deities of the River Niger who have to come to Britain to bathe in the sea of whiteness in order to proclaim their true beauty. It was the first use of blackface and the nine English deities came out of a mechanical pearl or mechanical arms, blacked up, but apparently the issue in the actual performing of the play was that they couldn't scrub the black off huh. in time to reveal the white ending. But I, I was just fascinated that this masquerade ball had taken place, that there was no... Nobody had really spoken about it. Nobody in Somerset House had really even understood what had taken place. Mm. And that they must have spent the equivalent in today's money of, what, 30 or 40 million to create this event. I mean, quite astounding. And that nothing had really celebrated Africa on the court since. I mean, the concept of the script, it, it astounded me. So my work was really kind of a response to that in casting 40 graphite African figures, nude males, that I then put on the court to speak about 
exoticism, to speak about the diaspora and how we move forward. So, yeah, it was a great moment. You were making a serious point, but there was positivity in your rebuke. Can you describe your graphite figures? How did you want people to respond to them? Well, interestingly, I had based the figures on a statue that had been brought back to me by my father on a trip to Kenya that we'd made in the early 70s. And I was fascinated by the idea that this statue, I rebuilt at two metres from its four-foot original, would then multiply to a set of 40. In a kind of humorous way, I wanted to display what a diaspora or an African diasporic moment really is. That one arrives, and now 40 are strong, that look like their ancestor. But I wanted to use graphite versus ebony wood to speak about a different story about the trajectory of what it is to look African and be born here in the UK or anywhere else in the Western Hemisphere and what our future might be. Mm. So I wanted to shift the materials to bring alive the conversation, if you like. This is so interesting because you're using art, creativity, to explain something which it would take many volumes of books. Yeah, I'm trying to, yeah, <laughs> trying to. That's so that a you heck feel of a challenge. Yeah. Did you succeed? I hope so. What was interesting, actually, was... I guess for a lot of Europeans also, how many have the privilege of entering into a situation with 40 African male nudes, uh, quite literally, you know, to have that intimacy. It was quite an interesting experiment to see how people would uh, engage. And what I found fascinating was how much people loved it and sit there and, and take your selfies or whatnot. But it was very engaging in terms of how it worked as an installation versus a singular piece. Let's get back to this sculpture, which brings us to together today. Yeah. The Mothership Connection, which is standing proudly there in Regent's Park, takes its title from a 1975 album by Parliament. Can you tell me about that record and Afrofuturism? Yeah. I mean, I was massively influenced by Parliament and Funkadelic as a kid. This was a massive funk entourage from the west coast of America. They had come to perform here, I think it was in 1976 or 77, I can't remember exactly, but my father took me to the concert at Hammersmith Odeon in which George Clinton and his peers came from literally miles up above the stage and landed on the stage in Hammersmith on a futuristic Afro rocket ship I mean, it was a very psychedelic moment, but an incredible one in which they kind of proclaim this ownership of this funky Afrofuturism in everything that they personified. I was very taken by that as a kid. I was thought it was marvellous. Just the regalia, their colours, their sense of pride. It was, for me, it was an amazing moment. It's something that stuck with me ever since. I love the concept of the mothership connection as a this kind of Africanist future world rocket ship that travels between mm. various moments in time. It was something I really wanted to build on and develop. I think also, you know, thinking about being a kid in the 60s and 70s, we were rendered quite invisibly. I mean, young people don't realise, but mid-70s, if you like reggae music, there was probably one hour of reggae music played on, on national British radio a week. If you like soul or R&B, it was the same thing. You maybe got two hours. <laughs> it was a very different landscape. When we looked at anything on the television, there was no representation of us in that sense. Our culture, 
was never identifiably built into the landscapes of science fiction at that point in time. I think I come from a generation that wanted to put correction to that by literally drawing in us and our culture in all the places that we'd been invisible in prior, you know. So for hmm. me, it was very much about that and still is. I'm intrigued by the exploration of Afrofuturism in that way, just as I was inspired by Steel Pan in Trinidad that had replaced the drum after it was made illegal. I think when people talk about Afrofuturism... something I think a lot of listeners won't know anything about. Yeah, well, it's fascinating, isn't it? People think about Afrofuturism in art as something that begins in the 1980s. Mm. But actually, when you look at the Caribbean and being post-Africa and enslaved, well, everything in that moment becomes Afrofuturistic because you're trying to find a way to engage with a culture that you've been denied. In Trinidad, drumming in groups of more than seven was outlawed for fear of Africanist insurrection, Incredible. which is how the steel pan came into being. Wow. The steel pan is probably the last acoustic instrument made that plays a full symphonic range hmm. at this point in time. But interesting how creatively we find that as an enabler when the drum is banned. So I'm interested in how creatively, when things are taken away, we find ways around them or through them, or how, how creatively we get past the blockade, mm. you know, quite literally. In that Repression sense. can yeah. breed creativity. Absolutely. And I think the artistic process is fantastic in unveiling ways or creating ambitious ways for us to move forward. What fascinated me was I went back to Trinidad to document Carnival, and there were all these incredible old world mythologies being played out in incredible masquerades and costumes. And this literally gave people the chance to exalt and emancipate themselves. And for me, that was incredible. It blew my mind. And my practice really begins there. But what I became fascinated by was the idea that an old world mythology also needs to evolve. And if we were making something that was sculptural or, or mythically costume-based, how do new world materials help to give that a contemporary voice? On trips to the British Museum when looking at African antiquities, I found that I was kind of too far away from them or at a distance to something that felt like it was already 300 years behind me. And I wanted a way back in to appropriate those cultures and reignite them in some way that they might be in front of me once more and enable them somehow to engage in contemporary topics. For me, the discovery was working in resins, plastics, graphite, uh, new world materials that suddenly gave old world design a new voice. The sculpture is fantastical, like the Afrofuturism which inspired it. Yeah. Can you describe to the listener, and we'll share a, a photo on Twitter and Instagram, but it, it might not convey the, the size of this thing. The mothership connection is uh, a totem. It's 30 foot, 9 metres high, built of kind of architectural building blocks, if you like, with a Mende helmet mask made of fibreglass in red and blue neon colours. Who is the face at the top of the sculpture? I wanted her to be feminine. I wanted this piece to, to really speak about African women in that sense, as mothers of the culture. This is something traditionally worn by women in ceremonies of healing in Africa, in the Sande Mende tribes. And I wanted the piece to feel like it was travelling literally between the past, the present and the future in that sense. I could flush out from this ancestral head mask this 
quite splendorous costume built into the shape of the rocket ship. Each element lights up. The whole thing is ablaze with colour and style. It's my most monumental work today. And I can tell you, it feels it. Good. I mean, I was there last night in the gloaming. It was sort of twilight almost. Oh, and wonderful. Yet, the place was ablaze with it. Oh, great. Um, there's nothing else in the park in that moment. And here is this gorgeous being that you have created. Oh, that's fantastic. I hope so. I wanted this work to, to feel like a celebration hmm. of um, Africa in that sense. And originally I was commissioned to make this work for a sculpture park in Hawaii, mm-hmm. weirdly. Really? And I wanted to do something that felt tropical, lush and colourful and also speak about the story of Africa's diaspora. But what I didn't want to do was only reference Africa. And on the trip to Washington, I was looking at all of the Capitol buildings uh, and, and all of these fantastic monuments there. But again, harking back to my father and, and my inquisitiveness... I was interested in the invisible stories of the slaves and the indentured labourers that had built these great monuments and had contributed to the building of the great Western world and who were unacknowledged. So what I tried to do was use building blocks as parts of the totem from the ground up that spoke in reflection or, if you like, to those buildings and situations that this might then unveil a conversation about that invisible history and how it should be acknowledged. Is your use of light and translucent materials new? And are you deliberately trying to direct the viewer's eye with them? I think what I really liked about the use of light within this is its pulsation or gives it a life force. It feels like it breathes. So, in well, it a is sense... actually psychedelic. <laughs> <laughs> so in that sense, I'm excited by that. And I think it's really interesting to use light both as a conveyor of colour and emotion and a pulse in that sense. Um, I guess also coming from filmmaking and photography, I'm, I'm a big fan of lights, mm. period. Uh, the idea of how one can use that to create mood and convey feeling. Please do come back when I've got it lit. Uh-huh. For the week of the fair, between 3pm and dusk or night time, it will be lit. And Fabulous. that is something I'm looking forward to sharing with people. Now, joyous for the domestic audience, your next artwork pays homage to the Notting Hill Carnival. That's right. How did you get involved? And are you allowed to give us any details of the murals before they're unveiled? Absolutely. Yes, definitely. Um, It's a great commission. I was asked to to work in glass mosaic to create an artwork across six panels that now will run around the new Ruby Hotel, which was prior to that. I think Damien Hurst had it as his pharmacy, the same building. Uh, this is right on the high street. But I've used, again, my Mokajumbi character walking across these panels in a kind of crocheted hemisphere of psychedelicness built out of glass. Um, it's it's a beautiful, beautiful work. I'm working with an artist who specialises in mosaic, second-generation artist, Oliver Budd, out in Kent, who's producing the most fantastic glass mosaics from my original artworks. I'm hoping that this will be installed early next year, but I'm very excited to share pictures with you so you might see that. The other thing that I think is interesting maybe we should mention is that the Nautical Carnival is now 50 years old or more. Horace, my father, was one of the men and women involved in the creation of that in the early 60s. 
It started off as a handful of people with steel pans. Claudia Jones, who had come to Britain from the United States as head of the Socialist Workers' Party through the McCarthy era, suggested that the carnival post the Notting Hill riots might help local people identify with an aspect of Caribbean culture that might make them like us more. Mm. So it was using culture in that moment to entice local Britons to really understand aspects of Caribbean culture that might help them engage and, and, and help the integration needed at that point in time. And from that, it's grown to what? A festival of two and a half million people. It's the biggest street festival in Europe. And I'm very pleased that this public artwork acknowledges that. It's mm. the first of its kind to do so. And yet this year's Notting Hill Carnival had some negative press with calls from minority of voices for the event to be moved. Yeah. Do you think its location is key to its identity? Absolutely. That it couldn't be created anywhere else? I do think it's key to its identity. I think it's key to the geography of how a carnival has to move in terms of the processions. And I think it's, it's something of pride for that neighbourhood to engage with. That particular part of West London, beyond just the carnival itself, has been a role model for what multiculturalism has really achieved. And for me, it's been key. If you think in the early 60s, before the onset of people from the Caribbean arriving there, it was Irish predominantly. And I think, like myself, many of the mixed-race kids that grew up in my age came from Irish and Caribbean families, many from that part of London. But the carnival has really, I guess, championed who we are and has now become anglicised in, in how it speaks about black British culture, hmm. quite literally. You've spoken before of a sense that your father's generation kicked down the doors yeah. so that your generation could have a sense of self. It's a big legacy. How do you plan to honour it? I hope I honour that in my practice, in moments like this, like mm. the Mothership Connection or the Invisible Man and the Mask of Blackness. Mm. Uh, really, my practice, I've taken the baton in how I see my pursuits are still challenging or being as challenging as I can to knock down doors, to recount histories that have been invisible and make visible those histories once more so that we can actually move forward with some insight as to what the story really was and not only from one person's point of view. Well, what brought us together was your wonderful sculpture in Regent's Park, yeah. which is completely out of kilter with history Thank in you. the sense that it makes a statement of reality, which is that multiculturalism is here to stay Absolutely. Uh, and that it is victorious. Thank you. And I think that's an amazing achievement. And I think we both share that as an aim and ambition for our children moving forward. We also. do. Yeah. We do. Thank you very, very much for talking with us. That was the artist Zach Obey. His sculpture, The Mothership Connection, is currently on display in London as part of Free's Sculpture, a free art exhibition in Regent's Park. You'll find links to this and Zach's other work in the episode description. I'm John Snow, and I'd like to say thank you for listening to Snowcast. To get in touch, please email hello at snowcast.uk or look for Snowcast on Facebook and Instagram. I'll be sharing another episode next week, so please subscribe on your platform of choice 
and spread the word. Tell your friends. Goodbye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.